right up to 1130. Right up to 1130. Okay. Thank you, David. It's really uh, good to be with you. Uh, David did mention that I am also serving um, on his ordination council, which means I am going to be getting the privilege of asking him a lot of questions this year. And uh, we're looking forward to that being a very profitable thing. And um, we're also thrilled that David is coming on the board of elders at Grace Church, and it's really a privilege to uh, uh, be able to serve with him. Well, it's good to be with you in your uh, study of this whole matter of the enemies of Christ. And I was asked to speak today on the subject of the cults, and I'd like to um, focus your attention on that in the few minutes that we have together. Uh, Christianity is uh, basically existing in a sea of different cults and isms and uh, false religions or false prophets as uh, the Bible speaks of them. And uh, just about everywhere you look, you see some form of, of cult activity. If you could just quickly classify the cults, you find that some of them are actually cultic world religions. They consume whole nations or groups of nations such as Buddhism or Islam. Uh, and in, in the widest sense, we would call them cults. There are others who you would perhaps call pseudo-Christian cults. They are those who attempt to uh, uh, clone a true Christianity, and, and, and yet are cults in doing that. You would see everything from the Christian Science Church, the Mormon Church, the Children of God, the local church of Witness Lee, and even the Roman Catholic Church would fit in that category of, of one who attempts to, to be Christian and yet is pseudo-Christian in its perspective. A third group of cults might be called personality cults or cults that are built around an individual, a whole mass of following around uh, anyone from uh, Reverend Sun Mayan Moon to David Koresh, which we all saw uh, play out across our television in recent years, and even the Jim Jones cult with its infamous mass suicide uh, would be examples of personality cults, and they come and they go, particularly with association of Indian and uh, Eastern gurus. There's a fourth group of cults that are in our day, including the occult and mystical cults, everything from astro astrology to higher Krishna society to those who pursue the, the martial arts, uh, UFOs, yoga, and even transcendental meditation. And so we have these various categories of those that we call a cult. And if you try to count them all up, some would argue there's hundreds, some would say there's thousands. It depends on, on, on how many, I guess, um, you would, would uh, have to have in a following before you call it a cult. Uh, there are thousands of cults if, if you could move it down to maybe 50 members and, and less, and there are perhaps hundreds of cults uh, uh, if you look at a membership of perhaps 50,000. Uh, at any rate, what we're talking about is perhaps 150 major cults across the world today which confront uh, Christianity at every uh, step along the way. Um, to try to define them or understand them is often elusive. Uh, some of them are very slippery intentionally. Some of them are very uh, transparent in what they believe. And so we very much need a, a definition of the cults. In seeking to do that this morning, what I'd like to do is to try to ask the question, what is a cult? And, and try to define that for you a little bit and try to uh, then focus on how we can identify cults and what their characteristics are and then perhaps how we can um, talk to the cults. I remember some years ago when my children were small of telling them I was going to go speak on the cults and one of my kids said to me, are you going to speak on those little horses again? Uh, thinking that uh, we're talking about agriculture here. No, we're talking about theology uh, here. And um, this, is, um, this is a group, a religious group, which is regarded as unorthodox. 
And if we could define a cult, it would be in that way. A group which is teaching contrary to biblical truth uh, with regard to essential doctrines. When we talk about a cult, we're not talking about a minor disagreement over, over uh, uh, an issue that would perhaps be a, of not great worth or essentialness. But what we're talking about in a cult is a major deviation from orthodoxy. We have the Word of God, we have biblical doctrine, and then we have a group which has departed from that. As we look across the, the world today, we see many denominations which are rather fixed and rather established, such as the Baptists or the Presbyterians. And then we use the term sect to describe maybe a smaller group that would pull out of the major Presbyterian group and start a smaller group, such as the um, uh, a more conservative element, such as the PCA or the more conservative Presbyterians or the conservative Baptists, which would be more conservative generally than the main group. And we talk about a denomination or a sect, but then when we talk about a cult, we're talking about a group that has doctrine withdrawn from all of that and has peculiar doctrine which is outside the pale of orthodoxy. So a group then is cultic to the degree that it deviates from biblical or orthodox truth. If I could just share with you Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, it pictures what we might call a cult uh, in the biblical setting in which we see a group that starts out seemingly teaching truth and ends up a cult. In Matthew 7, verse 22, we read, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We see that again in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1 where we are told, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone into the world. And so we see that a cult perhaps purports to be true, but then as it comes under the scrutiny of biblical truth, uh, it is found to be false. Second Timothy 4, 3 and 4 also speak of that, but we won't take time to look at it now. Why study the cults then? Let me suggest three reasons. Number one, so you don't go out and join one. Uh, you have the discernment to understand what they are. Number two, so you don't start one. Uh, surprisingly enough, they're easy to start. Uh, and number three, so you'll know how to deal with those who are already in to a cult. And so with that in mind, let me just uh, ask three questions this morning in the time we have. Number one, how do you recognize a cult? And I'd like to give you five uh, ways to recognize a cult. And then secondly, how do we profile a cult? What distinguishes a cult? How do we separate us? Why aren't we a cult here? And some have tried to call us that. And why are we not a cult? And by trying to profile a cult, I think you can help understand that. And then finally, how do you deal with a cultist? Question number one then, and that is, how do you recognize a cult? Would you turn to Second Peter chapter 2? I think there's no more useful passage in all of the scriptures on on how to recognize a cult in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And we could take the whole time right here this morning, and I encourage you to go back over uh, this passage because it is of great significance, along with its uh, corollary in, in the book of Jude, in coming to understand a cult. It is a cogent warning against false teachers. Follow as I read. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies 
even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. For many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And Peter makes it clear that God is already kindling the fires of hell for these false teachers to show how much God despises those uh, who would come against the truth. But look quickly at some characteristics of a false teacher or a cult or of, of one who would teach cultic material in these verses. Number one, in terms of recognizing a cult, I would suggest that we look for cults where we least expect them. Look for a cult where you least expect it. Look at verse 1. False prophets also arose among the people. And that word among is a key word there in, in that among the true believers, the false prophets arise. That is, cults kind of prey on believers and they come from among believers often. And we see this all the way from the earliest of times of Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, where the Bible speaks of false teachers that would come among the people and prey on the people and begin to pull them uh, away. And so the, this attempt to infiltrate is exactly where the cults are coming from. They don't start and announce on the outside, here I am a cult. They come from within. And you notice there's two kinds here. There are those who are already known. The Bible says false prophets there also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. In other words, there are already false teachers in the first part of that verse who are well-known and well-recognized. But then there's going to be another group who will, uh, looking to the future, uh, arise among you. And Peter warns the flock that while there already are commonly known false cults, there's going to be some more of these cults who even come from among them. And that the use of the, of, the, um, of, the, of the future there will shows that this is an ongoing or increasing intensity as time goes on. That as, that as the church age continues, more and more of these false cults are going to rise from within the people. And so the cult doesn't knock on the door of the church and say, here I am. It comes from within the pews of the church of those who, who start out understanding the truth and then begin in a very surreptitious way to introduce uh, false teaching. And so there is a great need then for biblical discernment. And so in recognizing a cult, look where you might least expect it. Don't look out there in the, uh, where they all are, but, but sometimes the cult comes right from within. Uh, looking point B, or a second way to recognize a cult, would be to look for subtle differences. You notice how these false teachers, the text says, uh, will come from among you and they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. That's a very interesting word, there, that word uh, for uh, translated here secretly. It has the idea of to bring in alongside. In other words, they will continue to teach the truth as they already um, were before, but they'll bring the error in and they'll lace it into the truth. And so that the false teacher or the cultist will then bring the two together and teach a mixture of truth and error. He will bring the one alongside the other. And in an underhanded or covert or or secret way will begin to lace the truth with error. If you will, then he will counterfeit the truth. And that is exactly what the cultist does. Jude, in commenting on that in verse 4, says this, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out 
for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So cults creep in among true believers and prey on them and surreptitiously or, or counterfeit in that kind of mechanism begin to teach error alongside of truth and they mix the truth with the error. We see that in many ways across the pages of history. We saw that as uh, very often in the early church fathers who attempted to mix ph- philosophy with Christianity and in doing so they ruined Christianity as they filled it with philosophy. We see it in our own modern day in, uh, in Christian circles with a mixture of psychology and this, uh, and this foolish idea of an attempt to integrate truth with error. Truth needs to be subordinated to the scriptures and, and so that every word of, of, of anything that would be examined would be looked at in light of the scripture. And so they attempt to bring the two together and they attempt to uh, mesh them together and you have truth and you have error. Look at verse 3 where we see uh, a further dynamic of this. It says that for their greed they will exploit you. And that's an interesting word. It's the idea of to merchandise. It's the idea of, a, of using phony argument. It's, it's the idea of the, of the used car salesman that sells you a bill of goods and sells you something of, uh, of very little worth. And this is the way the cults operate. They come in and they exploit, they deceive, they, they do everything they can to, uh, to make what they um, have to offer unclear uh, so that you will be deceived. I have a book in my library by a Catholic called What Every Catholic Needs to Know About Fundamentalism. And if you read the book carefully, uh, they have tried to take fundamentalism, which is how they would characterize us, take it apart limb by limb and then try to, uh, to talk in such terms in which to deceive the evangelical into thinking that they are just like them. And you know, to a large degree, they've done that in our day with the coming of the evangelical accord. Many evangelicals uh, have been deceived. Uh, I've watched a television program this Sunday put out by a cult group and I had to watch 30 minutes until... Uh, as just a, a footnote, as the program was closing, you find out that it's put on by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But for 30 minutes, they sing Christian hymns and do speaking and other things, but they don't tell you where they're coming from. Very typical of that group particularly, but many others use deception in an attempt to, to come alongside truth and play as if they were truth when, in fact, they are deceiving. Let me look at a third uh, characteristic of cult, and that is the idea of looking for selfish motives. Look for selfish motives in the cults. Verse 2 says, And many will follow their sensuality. And then we see in verse 3, They will follow their greed. And we find with the cults that the motive is not for the purity of the truth. It is not for uh, what is right, but often it is for a selfish motive. Either to gain a crowd or to gain wealth or for ego or popularity or pride or, or driven by intellectual pride. But the motive many times underneath the surface... Um, is not true. And uh, it is um, with great, great um, hypocrisy. And so there is this selfish motive and, and, and it is very clear, it is not so clear on the surface, but it is very clear as you look deep into the cult and what it is doing, that it is not of God. Look number four for success there in verse two. It says, and many will follow their sensuality. Another characteristic of a cult many times is a large following. A large following. And you know, re- results do never make a doctrine true. And, and a large following doesn't make a cause right. And many times in the case of cults, you have a significant following. And you have a, a number of people that will follow. And that is just a byproduct of the cult. 
that Satan can deceive and he can do it very well to the point where many will follow. And because of this, the way of truth will be a malign. So truth goes out the window and, and doctrine goes to the side and a large group uh, comes in its place. And so you have to take a choice between popularity and spiritual integrity. And many times what we see in the cults is, is, a, is a large following and yet it does not have the truth. One final thing in terms of a characteristic is, is to look for ruined lives. Look again in verse 1. It says that these false teachers who are among you will bring this heresy or these false doctrines in secretly and what it describes them introducing here is destructive heresies. Or in the original, it's the, it's the idea of ruinous heresies. Things that will ruin the people that uh, uh, to come into them. And it's an interesting idea. The word could have been stronger. It could be the idea of ruin to extinction, that is, destroy them. But the idea of the word is more that it will, that will ruin them without making them go extinct. It'll just turn a, a person who is seeking truth uh, into uh, one who is, who is just destroyed in this cult. And if you've ever seen someone or attempted to witness someone in, in a cult, they, they are just ruined with the heresy. They are caught up by it and they are filled with it and, and you can't talk to them and you can't uh, reason with them because this thing has just consumed them. And so it ruins lives. It ruins them from uh, being able to have a fruitful study and understanding of the word of life. So how to recognize a cult then? It's something that you see from within. It's something that you see uh, using um, deceptive means. It's something that comes from selfish motives, looking often for success and many times ruining lives. Let me come quickly to another uh, category, and that would be how to profile a cult. What, what makes a cult a cult? And um, I've worked through this a little bit, and I want to give you very quickly ten distinguishing marks of a cult. If you could call this the anatomy of the cult, uh, these are the things that usually go on when a cult exists and how you profile a cult. I'll just give these to you quickly, and, and we won't be able to develop any of them, but, but hopefully it'll help you in terms of discerning a cult and, and really even asking the question I raised at the beginning, why do we look at them and call them cults and we say, well, we're not a cult? Well, number one, a cult elevates other writings to the level of biblical truth. As you know, 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And Isaiah 40, verse 8 teaches that the word of our Lord stands forever. But the cult says, no, it's not enough. We need more. We, want to, we need to elevate some other things. Uh, if you look in the King James Bible, and not the one you carry around, but the one that the Mormon church gives you, uh, they have some extra verses in, in, uh, in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50, they've got a verse 33, which isn't in your Bible. Don't look now, but you'll see it's not there. But in their Bible it says, And that seer will I bless, and his name shall be called Joseph. And this is not talking about the Joseph in Genesis. This is talking about Joseph Smith. Okay, uh, And he shall be called Joseph. For the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand shall bring my people into salvation. Isn't that a little strong? I mean, and that's added right to the scriptures. And this is the characteristic of a cult. They say the Bible is not enough. It's got to be the Bible plus uh, this other book. The Bible plus this other man. Matter of fact, at one point in the Doctrines and Covenants of the Mormon Church, this incredible statement is made. Joseph Smith has done more, save Jesus only, for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. An incredible, blasphemous 
statement to elevate Joseph Smith up to the level of Jesus and say these two guys did more than anything else. No, it's Jesus alone that brought about our salvation. So it's the elevation of other writers and other writings to the same level of biblical truth. Anytime someone comes to you and says the Bible's not enough, you need my book, um, that's a cult. That's a cult. Anytime there is an addition to the Word of God beyond what is here, uh, that is a cult. And sometimes um, that can take uh, very, very strong forms, which they hand you the Watchtower or hand you uh, the Book of Mormon, and sometimes it can just be even subtle legalisms and other things that keep being added, which make it cultic. Now, a second uh, profile of a cult would be the denial of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The denial of the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the book of Colossians chapter 2, it is so clear uh, as to the, the position that Christ has in his church. Listen as I read Colossians 2.9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him we have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And so we see in this, in this very clear statement and many, many others that, that Christ is full deity and Christ is the means of salvation. And what every cult does is attack this doctrine of Christ. And they set up a false Christ. They set up a false um, one in which they take what was ascribed to Christ and they ascribe it to someone else. If ever there was a picture of a, of a cult, it is what the Roman Catholic Church has done to uh, uh, Mary, the mother of Christ, by taking everything that the Bible gives to Christ and moving it over to Mary. If you've ever thought about that, you see that, that Christ's virgin birth has moved over to Mary. Uh, Christ's deity has moved to Mary. Uh, Christ's sinless life has moved back to Mary. Christ's authority and even his role of mediator has moved back to Mary. And so it, fu it fulfills that cultic form, not that, that we would run out and the next Roman Catholic we see say, you're a cult. Uh, probably better something that we understand than that we pin on somebody. But, but you have to understand that they are doing that very same thing in making an antichrist out of Mary. There's a whole doctrine that comes out of that called Mariolatry, and there's hundreds of, of those kind of books, not in our library, but if you go in a Catholic library, you'll find hundreds of books on Mariolatry. Just like we talk about Christology, they talk about Mariolatry. And I pulled uh, some quotes out of one of them that I think are just incredible in revealing how far that the church has gone to move what is given to Christ over to Mary, and in doing so, has set up this cultic idea of an antichrist. Listen to this little quote. All power is given to thee in heaven and on earth so that at the command of Mary all obey, even God. That's getting ridiculous. And thus God has placed the whole church under the dominion of Mary. End of quote. Let me read you another quote. Mary is also the advocate of the whole human race and she can do whatever she wills with God. That incredible statement of taking what belongs, not some of this doesn't even belong to Christ, but has put all that on Mary and created a false, a false Christ. Here's another quote that is so blasphemous that it doesn't even bear reading, but just see what, see, listen to what was done here with Mary. The whole Trinity, O Mary, gave thee a name above every other name that at thy name every knee should bow. That is, a, that is a serious, blasphemous statement attempting to put what belongs only to our Lord, to Mary. You see, that is the elevation, or excuse me, that is the denial 
of the person and work of Christ. It is taking what is clear in Scripture and giving it to another. That's a cult. And any time you see Christ thrown out or Christ's teachings set aside or Christ's deity set aside, that's a cult. Number three, the alteration of the biblical plan of salvation. The alteration of the biblical plan of salvation. The Bible says in Acts 4.12, and I'm sure you know it, that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And yet a cult will take the, the biblical doctrine of salvation and set it aside and create some type of elaborate works system. Let me read you a little quote from uh, Sun Mind Moon in his cult, uh, uh, which is named after himself. And, and this is, again, very, very strong, showing you how they have taken Christ and thrown him aside and in its place put, put Reverend Moon. Moon said this in a meeting back in 1965. He says, I have certain things you can find nowhere else. This is what has drawn you to me. What might seem presumptuous does not trouble me, arrogant soul. <laughs> My conscience is all clear and happy. And then he says this, and this is very typical of a cult. He says, you owe me. Without me, there is a certain distance you cannot go in your search for God. You must come to him through me. You are following the universal path to heaven, which has been sent by me. Now that's a cult taking Christ and his place of salvation aside and plugging in Reverend Moon. And you can take Reverend Moon out and you can put anybody else in there and that's what the cults do. They substitute the biblical plan of salvation for some other plan. And they, pray, they put the people in the place where they must come to the cult leader or the cult source in order to have salvation. That's a cult. You see, that only belongs to Christ. That only belongs to God. That's what distinguishes us from a cult. Because what is important here is the word, none of us. We are just the communicators of that word to the degree that we're faithful to it. But um, here is one who says, you need me to come to God. Number four is the deification of man with a minimizing of his sin. It takes various forms, but as you look at the cults, you find that each one tends to minimize the sin of man and in many cases raises him up. At the same time, they lower God down and they often treat... Uh, man is in this pilgrimage to becoming to what God is. And, and particularly in the Mormon church, but in many others, they say God was uh, what man uh, now is. And man is becoming um, what God is already. And so they lower God down, they elevate man up, and, and they, they minimize these roles and ruin the theology of the place of God and the place of man. A fifth description is the modification of the doctrine of endless punishment. The Bible is very clear about the subject of hell and that hell is for eternal uh, all time and that the fires of hell will burn forever. But the cults twist that and distort that. Revelation 20 is clear and yet what the, court, the, what the, um, the cults will do is come and, and teach some force, form of modification. Many will teach annihilation, that the wicked just disappear and that there is no hell. Others, like the Catholic Church, will teach a kind of purgatory, which is a hell with an end on it. It burns like the fires of hell, but then it stops, and then you can go on to heaven. Others teach some kind of universal salvation. But each cult will modify the doctrine of hell. And as we know, man in his pride despises uh, hell and this whole idea that he will have eternal punishment. And the cult becomes a mechanism to get rid of that hated doctrine of hell. 
And that's what cults do. They despise that idea that man will burn forever as an unbeliever who rejects God, and so they just eliminate it. A sex descriptive term would be stated or unstated the implication that the particular cult or group is the only one right. And if you don't believe like the cult believes, then, um, then you don't have the truth. This idea of exclusivity, that if you don't come to us, you don't have truth, is very much a cultic mentality. We would like to think that we have the scriptures and, the, and that, that we have tried to teach them as, as sound and as best that we could, but we would stop short of saying we're the only ones with the truth. There are other brothers and other sisters and other churches that have the truth as well. But the cult says no, it's either here or it's nothing. And many, many have seen the intolerance of cults through the years. Uh, Muslims, as one cult group, teach that Christians are firewood for hell. They're just something to be eliminated because they have no place. And there is this intolerance then. And so that's a cultic mentality, either stated or unstated, that we're the only ones that are right. A seventh descriptive term is a dictatorial leadership style. A dictatorial leadership style in which the cult is based on absolute loyalty and almost a messianic leadership relationship, um, much like we saw in the David Koresh thing as it played out over the last few years in which those people would rather stay in that building and die with him than walk away uh, for the most part. And that kind of dictatorial leadership is often a part of the cults in which the people that get in there subjugate their thinking and, and turn it into some kind of a loyalty thing. An eighth description of the cults would be intensive indoctrination. Intensive indoctrination without the right to ask questions. Now you can ask questions in a cult, but it's would you repeat that sentence or would you, uh, would, would you um, uh, explain what you mean? But there is no place in the cult uh, to go and to, um, and to question the fundamental... The relationships are all considered to be vertical in which you talk to the leader but you can't horizontally discuss anything among yourselves. And so what the cults do in their so-called learning is really uh, memorizing and spitting back what they've learned uh, but they haven't really learned the scriptures in the sense of to think and to reason and to understand them. That is not a cult um, uh, dynamic. That is only a part of true Christianity. A ninth description of the cults is this whole matter of, of demanding total commitment. Demanding total commitment, almost an enslaving, a, a driven by fear or guilt or even financially committing oneself. And sometimes even the breaking up of one's marriage is involved in the cult. And then tenth, to counterfeit normal Christian activities, which the cults do, as we said at the beginning of the hour. Let me conclude with one more question, and that is how to deal with a cult. And I want to give you just uh, five quick things that are really out of my own uh, effort to deal with cults and things the Lord has taught me that I would suggest to you uh, would be helpful. Number one, when you deal with a cultist, one who is in these kinds of things that we've been talking about this morning, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth as clearly as you can, but show them the love of Christ. You need to remember that the cult, the teachings, are really the form of pride that that, that this person has uh, has. Uh, embraced in his way of saying no to God. Think about the way in which you were before you were a believer and that pride that was in your heart. His heart uh, is filled with this cult. And so he needs to understand the truth. Number two, ask him leading questions. Ask them leading questions, questions that would, would stir up um, uh, thoughts about the person and work and authority of Christ. And as you do that, you will expose the error. If you ask them about Christ, you'll find out that they don't believe in the Christ of the Bible. And number three, share your personal testimony of faith in the living God with them. 
Having drawn them out, share your, your faith with them, emphasizing salvation, repentance, and redemption. And then number four, I would encourage you to call the cultus to repentance. When a Mormon comes to your door and you've uh, drawn him out on Christ and you've shared with him your testimony, invite him to get on his knees right there on the doorstep and, and, and repent of this false cult and to come to know the Christ uh, that you have come to know. And we must challenge these cultists at the very core of what they're doing in what I believe would be a presuppositional approach that we would, we would tear away the whole uh, context of what they're saying and call upon them to embrace the God of the Bible. And so call upon the cultists to bow and repent. And then number five, ask him for his name and address so that you can visit him and further share him with him the truth. That'll usually make him run. But, uh, but this whole idea of putting them on the offense, if you talk to those who, who were in cultist circles and, and have come to Christ, they're ready for those. They've got their dukes up for those who want to have a fight, so don't fight with them. They're ready for those who, uh, who want to say, come on in and have a Bible study. But there is no way that they are prepared to deal with the one who invites them to take their faith out of this false cult and putting in the living Christ. And so that's how we need to approach them, out of love, with the truth, calling them to take their faith out of this thing that has led them astray and put it in the living God. Well, that's a lot on the cults in a, in a quick half hour, and I hope it's been helpful to you. But I challenge you, uh, out of love, to reach out to these who so desperately need our help. Shall we stand and um, close in prayer? pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering this morning and lifting up your word. Thank you for all of these dear young people. Lord, we love them. We thank you so much you brought them here. We pray that you'd make each one of them a student of your word, to have the discernment, to recognize false teaching, and to be committed to evangelizing and reaching out to those who are caught in these ruinous doctrines. Lord, help us not to look down on them for but the grace of God it would be us, but help us to look across and to, and to call them to the truth in love uh, so that they would understand what they need to do. Bless us through this day, Lord, and we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.